Hear now the word of the Lord. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you be, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, here we are before your presence, and your grace is here to meet us in this moment. Your grace is always here to meet us through the power of Christ Jesus our Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Please bless our looking to your word this morning so that we might be filled without measure with the power of our living God. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Acts, at the end of chapter 20, we have this beautiful scene. Actually, Luke records for us the final moments that Paul had with the church of Ephesus this church that he's writing to now. And why I bring up Paul's final moments from the book of Acts um, is because he's actually, in, in this letter to Ephesians that was written afterwards, he's alluding to something they might have remembered from their last moment together. See, Paul had given them a final word of encouragement, and yet before he board, boarded the ship, he knelt on the seashore, he got down on the beach with the congregation, with the elders of Ephesus, and they prayed together. They prayed to the Lord their God, and they wept and they cried because Paul had just revealed to them the fact that he would never see them again in this mortal life. That they would never see each other again. And they embraced one another afterwards in love, and then Paul got on the ship. The elders and the congregation, they would have remembered that final moment as we remember those final moments ourselves with people we love, of being on their knees, praying alongside of Paul. We have those moments, those indelible moments where they are burned into our memories, the hard goodbyes, the long separations, moments of life where we are separated from those we love, either by distance or by job or even mortality. I just had my best childhood friend call me this morning, letting me know that his father passed. So he just had to say a similar kind of goodbye. And Paul begins our verses today, telling an Ephesian church that he still loves them, that he's still on his knees praying for them, he says, basically, even though I know you take my being in chains and sorrow, understand I'm still on my knees before God for you, 
hoping that He blesses you with an understanding that declares, even though in this moment it seems to be a time of great sorrow and affliction, we have a glorious God who can meet such moments. And this knee-bound prayer by Paul is, of course, directed to the Father, just as we do in the Lord's Prayer. We just did in the Lord's Prayer. And his prayer begins with what seems like a peculiar thing to say at first. He prays to our Father, who every family in heaven and on earth is named, each and every one of them. I couldn't help but think about Genesis chapter 2, verse 20, I believe it is, when God allowed Adam to name the animals and name the creation. And I, and I thought about that because I, I thought a little bit about the fact that what if an author of a favorite, a favorite author of mine or a favorite musician of mine or artist asked me to name their creation, their beautiful work? What a statement of love that would be. And yet, of course, we know the rest of the story with our first father, Adam, though really was he our first father, our first father, Adam, he, of course, fell into sin. And he marred that beautiful moment, that beautiful fellowship that he had with God. And yet, there's a, there's a sense in which what Paul is alluding to here is that the Father's never forgotten his, name, forgotten his name for us and his name being upon us. And even we see that in Genesis 3.15 with the promise of the Messiah. God has not forgotten about us. There's a beauty there, both on heaven and on earth. God has been incredibly gracious, even though we have faltered. He still has a name for us, a name that was written down in the book of life before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians has made clear throughout the first two chapters. He's arranged everything, and so because he's arranged everything, he has not forgotten our names. He's named us. In addition to God's name being on the earth, it is, again, for those in heaven as well. In one sense, Paul is saying here, that our Father in heaven is like the patriarch of patriarchs. He's the greater Adam. He's the greater Noah. He's the greater Abraham. He's the greater Jacob. He's the patriarch of patriarchs. God has named you and known you, and you're a part of his family, and he will not forget you. You know, there's a question I often get, especially in the warmer months here, because I'll have people knock on the door, and, and, and kind of want to tour the property. And so I'm happy to do it. And, uh, and it's always this question. Some of you might understand. Some of you are not going to get this at first. Who is Smith? You guys got it. Who is Smith? Smith, if you don't know, is that big obelisk burial site out there. The large obelisk that sort of stands out like a sore thumb. And I never have a good answer for this. I've asked Dell, I've asked Bruce, I've asked Karen. You know, historians that really have dived deep into the history of this church. And I don't know much about Smith. I sometimes wonder if it was kind of intentional, if the congregation decided at some point, hopefully it's no relation to you, George or Terry, you know, but... The congregation decided at one time, they're trying too hard. We're going to forget their name to history. I don't know who Smith is. So their story's forgotten. 
But the Father knows my name. The Father knows your name. So your story is never going to be forgotten. I hope somebody corrects me if I'm wrong. If somebody knows the story of Smith, see me after church. But again, we will be a part of his story. We are a part of his story. We, are, we have named parts in it. And then this prayer, that it, it builds into three specific petitions or requests. Paul is praying to the Father on behalf of the church. And, and in the Greek, it's a little easier to see this, but I like how the ESV has opted to make it more readable. The first prayer request is actually found in verse 16 that we're going to look at today. The second prayer request is found in verse 18. And the third prayer request is found in verse 19. And so the first thing Paul prays for is that God blesses this church with a strength in their inner being. I think of the church in America and throughout the world right now, and boy, do we need a strength in our inner being right about now for the things before us and the things that might come. And the good news is the Ephesians church needed it too. Trying times were in front of them. More than 300 years of persecution and trials and tribulation were in front of them. And yet by the time the Roman Empire's persecution of Christianity ends in that ancient world, Ephesus is like the Bible Belt. It's the epicenter. Even though that at the very waning moments of that empire's assault on Christianity, it was the hotbed of persecution. Ephesus is still there in the early church and when councils of Nicaea and other councils met, the first place they would always consider meeting was Ephesus. And some did meet there. They still stand strong. And not just standing strong, they've grown several times over. But being able to persevere in those difficult times is nothing we can accomplish or any church can accomplish on its own. It can't just be accomplished with a casual superficial, convenient public faith. And Paul knows this because Paul had lived this out in his own life, knowing that there are unpredictable twists and turns to life. And yet God sustained Paul through it all and he sustained Ephesus through it all. And if we seek God earnestly in our own present hour, he can sustain us as well. We had a visitor uh, to our church midweek this week, who uh, for the first time got to come into the building, and they remarked, wow, this church is alive. You, you, drive, you drive across, you drive all around this area, and, and you just think of churches like this, they must be dead. This person lived in Waxhaw, by the way, um, and they were just remarking at that. And the temptation comes, we can look at the history of the past of this church and we can think, wow, God's been great. It's almost been 300 years. But the reality is, how will it be another 300 years? Or up until the Lord's coming. We need a power. We need to rely on a power that comes from God alone, that comes through the power of God. And Paul is unpacking this in this prayer for us. This church will have no life if it doesn't rely upon the power of God. And then Paul unpacks his prayer a little more. 
This God-given strength allows us to have Christ take up residence in our hearts through faith, as all things, through faith, that we might be, and he uses two words here, rooted and grounded in love. And there is a beauty of that pairing of Paul's words. The idea of being rooted in love, rooted, of course, is an agricultural term. This week we had um, the first meeting of the Landscape Committee, which I think has about 500 people in it. Um, And so with 500 people, plus or minus a few hundred, of course, but you have 500 different opinions. And we were blessed to kind of have this expert horticultural, um, uh, bless us, Mary, bless us with her knowledge and her wisdom. And so as she's doing that, she's telling, you know, answering first a lot of questions. Can we have this tree? No. No, you don't want that tree. That tree is going to get blight. You want this tree? Oh, no. Lantern flies will kill that tree. Oh, no, no, no. Um, you know, you can't have this tree because this area is very windy. It's not going to sustain the windstorms if you get this tree. And so one after the other. And eventually, she gave a tree that she thought was the tree that would st- best stand. Stand up against all potential threats. And then she said, but the tree won't be strong enough if you don't for the first year at least soak it almost daily. Did she say daily? Daily. In about six to eight hours of water. Just a light hose. Because the water needs to penetrate deep to encourage those roots to go deep. So that when the windstorm comes, when the blight comes, when... The lanternfly, come on, find a predator. But the lanternfly comes. It can withstand all of these threats. And that's a little bit of what Paul's saying here. We need deep roots, not superficial roots. If you want superficial roots, you can look all around this property and see what the tornado did to the property. It looks like the Ardennes and the Battle of the Bulge, as Bruce Stocking likes to say, in a few locations. The other is being grounded. Grounded was an architectural term in the Greek, it's an, and so it's a foundational term. In the home state I hail from, which will rename nameless, every building that is built there, whether it's a high-rise or a home or, or a church, if you're allowed to build churches there uh, anymore, but um, if it's a church, has to withstand an earthquake. It's got to be built to certain specifications that if an earthquake comes, it could stand. There's an idea here as well with this architectural language. We need to be deeply rooted and we need to have a strong foundation. That's what Paul is praying for here. That's in the love of Christ. And, and, and roots are something that you can't just see. We can't see them unless a windstorm comes, but they are below the surface. We need more below the surface. And so that's how Paul begins. So Paul's prayer says we need God to bless us richly in places where the eye cannot see, where the roots of God can ground us, and a foundational faith that cannot be cracked when difficult times come. And have you noticed, this is how rarely how we pray. We pray often, God, end the struggle. God, end the uncertainty. 
God, end the blight. God, end the earthquaking. End the drought. But Paul prays, God, let them have the roots and the foundation to be able to withstand the droughts, withstand the storms, withstand the blight, withstand the earthquakes, through faith and love in Jesus Christ. We want things often to end that we find displeasing. Paul wants the things we find displeasing to find an end in being so when we remember God. And because we have, because we have this inner strength that comes from God when we encounter such moments. Let me just repeat that so that settles. We want things often to end that we find displeasing. Paul wants the things we find displeasing to find an end in being so because we remember the love and the goodness of our glorious God. And so it actually makes sense the next thing he's going to move to in his prayer if you remember what Paul has just said. Paul didn't pray all our troubles go away. In our life, for this church, in his life, you know, he prayed that they would have a faith that wouldn't waver while lesser faiths fail. And so if the first prayer wasn't to spare us hardships, it makes sense that the second prayer request is that we never forget how loved we are by God. Because what happens in our hardships? Our mind gets the best of us, and we are often tempted to believe, God must not love me right now. God, God must not even care for me right now. I don't even know if God exists right now. And so Paul is praying that this church might realize there really is nothing that can separate us from our Father who has named us in the heavenly places as a part of His family from the love of God. There is nothing that can separate His people from His love. Nothing. And if you want a full list of nothing, read the end of Romans chapter 8. Or join us when we're in that chapter in Sunday school. God's love is perplexing. It really is. It confuses. It's a head-scratcher at times how he loves, but it's always still there. That's why people who often claim to be atheists on the internet, they'll, they'll often pick up on this reality that we actually need to pray to be able to see the love of God because sometimes it just confuses us. You know, they'll have people argue things like, you know, God protecting the Israelites through the Red Sea. What about the Egyptian soldier's family? Or, you know, the cross is cosmic child abuse. And actually their arguments help prove our point. No, 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 you're, you're looking at it all wrong. If you knew more about the love of God, if God had revealed his love to you, you'd be able to see how actually those moments speak of redemption and renewal and restoration. And they're beautiful. We need to seek to have God's love continuously revealed to us because we doubt it. We so doubt it at times. I mean, just think of the last, really, since last three years, but in the last two, all the things that have happened, because nothing's happened to this church, right? Neither locally or globally. And yet... Have you had, as you've gained distance, while there haven't been tears and sorrows and, and struggles along the way, can you, as you gain perspective and distance from those moments, those critical moments that at first we were, we were caused to doubt and to be anxious, seeing the love of God prevail? I've seen the love of God prevail. Have you seen it with me? 
Have you been praying for it if you haven't? And then we have in this passage, we have Paul list four things about the love of God. The first being the breath of God. That's a hard one for me to say. I knew I was going to butcher it. Say that, try to say that five times fast. But what Paul is saying there to this church is, don't forget that the love of God has the ability to embrace the entire world. In one sense, the great commission that he has given us and to go into all the world is God's desire to give the world a bear hug. Because his love has such power that his love transforms those. It comes into intimate contact with. The next is length. When it comes to the length of God's love, it's forever. It will last forever. I could ask you to count every grain of dirt, every grain of sand on this property today and and start over again if you lose count. And by the time you're done with that, I could say, count every grain of sand on the whole earth. And that's still a shorter amount of time, how long that would take you. It's still a shorter amount of time than forever. He will, his love will never fail for you. It will go on forever. It's a love that lasts. The next is height. We could go into the farthest reaches of space. We could be given the ability to travel to the ends of the universe. But still, we could never reach into the heavens. And yet God has a love for us that traveled from heaven and reach down for heaven for us, but also lifts us up into the heavenly places. That's the greatest distance one can travel. The fourth is depth. There is no depth that God would not go to love you, and the proof of that is in the cross where Christ took on the agonies of hell so that you would not have to. He descended into hell. Upon that cross in order to save us. And so this second prayer of Paul is that as the storms come, as the blight comes, as these moments come, understand through it all, he loves you. He so graciously loves you. You understand that this this morning. You have a God that loves you like this, that you are named by. You are part of his family. And Paul's third and final prayer for the church is that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. And Paul's praying for in this moment is that God's blessings might be endless for Ephesus. Paul's basically saying, may you never feel like you exhausted God. It's, one of the ideas of this is actually, it's helpful to consider Psalm 23. We have that verse uh, where the psalm writer, David, but is in the presence of his enemies. His enemies are are trying to criticize him, and yet he declares in that psalm, as the King James put it, my cup runneth over. Sort of, I want you to picture your relationship with God should be like if I gave you a water bottle outside, but also had this massive fire hose filling up that same water bottle as you're trying to drink out of it. You have access to so much love of God that you can't even begin to make a dent into the cup because it just flows over. It's overflowing. That's the kind of love that he wants you to know that you have. And so the Apostle Paul is praying that even in the hours of your trial, you won't just find yourself with a faith that's barely holding on, but a faith that is pouring out in excess, which is... Encouraging for us to consider and to pray for because 
Don't we fear many things and worry that the cup might be half empty for the courage we need in any given moment or what have you? And then we hit verses 20 and 21, and, and I'm just going to briefly skim over them uh, because Bruce is going to dive into them a little more deeply uh, in a few weeks to come because it's uh, one that's even often a benediction. He loves to give a favorite verse for him. So I'm purposely going to skim it, but I do want to make a minor point for now. God is able to do better than what we planned when it comes to prayer. And that's a glorious thing to appreciate. You know, I have this habit when I go to a restaurant for the first time, I normally ask the waiter or waitress, what do you think the two best dishes are? And sometimes they reply to me at that moment, I'm a vegan, and then, then I know I'm just on my own. You know, I, can't, I cannot rely on their opinion by God's providence. I just have to make a decision. But no, I ask that question because I know the waiter or waitress has seen every dish come out. And they know. They've seen the kitchen. They've seen the mechanics. Stay away from this. Get that. That's how you look like me. If you want a physique like me, you start asking these questions at restaurants. You know what? It almost never fails to have a wonderful meal. And they're not God. Realize that this actually frees us in prayer. Because we want to be really specific, right? We want to tell God, I want this, I want this, I want that. Instead of just trusting that the chef is going to provide us something that is good for us. There's actually a, a taco shop uh, my favorite taco shop in Reno did not have tacos on the menu. The chef, it was this Americana kind of grill, but the chef loved tacos, and he made for all the staff tacos. And um, he knew every time I came in, or the, any of the waiting staff, I went there often with Ron. It was our favorite place to go, and Ron is the name I love. You can blame him for me largely being a pastor. He's my most important mentor in life. Outside, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. But um, we were getting tacos. And you'd see people around. Look at that. Why are they eating tacos? That's not even on the menu. I want that. But I, the, the waitress and the waiters had all told us that these were the best things that came out of that kitchen. And we need to have that kind of dependence upon God where we can trust, even if it's not on our menu, that he will bless us ultimately. And you know, if we doubt this, all we have to do is look to the mortal life of Christ. The mortal life of Christ outwardly looks like, at first glance, a failure. If you hear, here was this preacher. And for three years, at times, you would preach to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Huge, massive crowds streaming out. He looked like he was going to be this change agent for, for Israel under the Roman occupation because everybody, it's on the top of everybody's wish list, was kicking Caesar out of Judea. And yet, Jews and Gentiles 
both in their own right, inspired to put an end to the life of this pastor and preacher and this messianic kind of figure. And at the foot of his cross was not a crowd, not a great multitude of those who had followed him faithfully, even to the cross. Even his closest friend who said, I will go to the cross with you, he failed, and Peter. And so, as he cries out, it is finished, it seems like a failure. We know now those words are good things, because he was talking about our sin, but while they heard it, they would have heard failure. He's dead. It looks over. And yet, God's love is a little different. It looks a little different. And it was a great act of love. So that we no longer see catastrophe, but we begin to see in any situation, whether it's the cross or in our life, the endless love of God for us. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Good Father, who we are unworthy to be named by, and yet you know us by name. We thank you that your, your love is everlasting. It never wavers, it never falters. How good you have been to us. Let us live in the power of Christ's holy name and have the courage to face life's storms boldly with a strong foundation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.